So this is like our holiday Sunday. This is like uh, Michael Reed is getting married today. So it's, yeah, I know. It's, it's like the, the element holiday Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Hopefully by this point, you guys have filled out these questionnaires that we have you know, put out for you. We don't have any more on the peanut tables around the room. You can still do it online. Uh, this is the last week. If you took one of these and you didn't fill it out and you have it at home, fill it out and bring it back next week. Jesus said so. I prayed, I asked him, he said, that's what you were supposed to do. And I said, okay, th there we go. Oh boy, what do I got to go through today? A whole lot of stuff. Uh, I would actually ask you in, you know, talking about how Michael is actually getting married today, that you guys would offer prayers for them. Uh, Michael and Hillary, if you don't know Hillary, that's her name. And if you guys would just over the course of the next four weeks, because they are taking, they're actually at, at one point, they're going to be taking a little trailer and driving around together. And if that doesn't help people figure out each other, you know, after get married, <laughs> nothing else is going to. <laughs> So pray for them on that trip that they would, they would really just grow in their deep relationship with one another and what that looks like. Um, uh, oh, uh, on the live stream, if you're watching, we had technical difficulties at the beginning, but I hear it's up. So if you're watching, today is the last week that we're going to do that countdown before service starts. Uh, there is going to be something up with different links showing you where we're going to go and be, but we're going to focus more of our effort and energy back into live in person in the room. So you guys are aware of that because you're here. But if you're watching online, I just want you to be aware the live stream will still be up at the normal time. So you'll still be able to see it, but there won't be a countdown. We're going to be going more towards looking at this. And I just wanted you guys to be aware of that. Uh, if you are new to Element, there are Bibles and all the communion tables throughout the room. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, if you for lost yours, you can have one and take that with you. There are also sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And on the front side, you're going to get the baseball card picture of the minor prophet that we're going through. On the back, you're going to get some stats on the minor prophet. One of them I disagree with, but it's okay. Uh, on the back of these, and there's a couple questions to go deeper into what we talk about. And the top, you're going over the verses that we are going to be going through today. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. Will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get the sermon notes, the little short ones that we have, uh, anyway, uh, and you will get verses, announcements, everything that we go through today. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is Obadiah verse 4, and you're thinking, well, what chapter? There's only one chapter. So Obadiah verse 4 says, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, today I ask that you would teach us to be a people who understand what it means to trust you with our entire lives, and that would result in humility before you. And that we would walk in ways that bring you great honor, that we are not looking first to ourselves, we're looking first to you. How to serve those around us, how to live lives that glorify you in all that we do. Teach us to truly be your people. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so I said we're doing this series called The Miners. I know we made it like baseball, even though none of them probably played baseball because it wasn't invented yet. But we're calling it The Miners because it sounds a little bit baseball-y. The Minor Prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. We're doing you know, these overviews of the entire book. And The Minor Prophets will cover a period of time that's about 500 years. I mentioned this the last few weeks, but up until 900 B.C., the nation of Israel was one kingdom. In 900 B.C., the northern and southern kingdoms split. 
split. The northern kingdom calls themselves Israel, and there are 10 tribes. The southern kingdom is called Judah, and there's two tribes, but they both have the same amount of land mass. The northern kingdom never had one godly king. And eventually what God does to bring about judgment and discipline on his people is he sends the Assyrians through the northern kingdoms. And the northern kingdoms are essentially wiped out at that point. Some, many are killed, some are hauled off into captivity, but that happens there. You go all the way till about 587 BC and the Babylonians, they take out the Assyrians and they come down and they take out Judah as well. Discipline from God upon his people. God has his people hauled off into slavery into Babylon. Now eventually God's people will come back and they will begin to build the temple again. The temple re rebuilt in 417, or I mean 517 BC. And then you'll see one of the last prophets in about that fourth century BC or fifth century BC start to speak through a lot of these things called Malachi. And essentially these prophets will cover about 500 years of time. Now the minor prophets talk about this and that God is going to do these things so that his people would know that God is not powerless, but God is actually bringing these things. God is not ineffective. God is actually bringing the ruin, not because he hates Israel, but because he loves them and he needs to discipline them so they would understand their call in the world. He prunes them and disciplines them. And so God has all these people prophesy before the calamity happens so they will know that God himself is not surprised, but is actually in control of every single bit of it. Now, many of the prophets speak of this thing called the day of the Lord. We talked about this last week. Obadiah is going to do that as well. And they speak about it in different ways in different seasons. And what I told you last week is the day of the Lord will essentially come down to the day that God brings about what he is going to bring about. And when you look at the prophets, there were different days of the Lord that they prophesied. When the Assyrians came through, that was a day of the Lord. When the Babylonians came through, that was a day of the Lord. When God's people came back, that is a day of the Lord. When Jesus comes, that's a day of the Lord. In the New Testament, Peter will speak about the coming day of the Lord when God brings all things to culmination in the return of Christ. Day of the Lord. We have to understand as we read these things in the scriptures that the Jewish people saw things a certain way as well. And this day of the Lord is God's day because it's the day of the Lord, his day. God brings redemption. God brings his people back. God brings about his purposes. And so when we look at this in connotation of who we are today, we have to understand that we are those who have also opposed God and his purposes in the world, but God always brings about what he is going to bring about. A lot of Christians today, especially those in America right now, we sound a lot like the Israelites do. We complain when things get hard in our lives, when things get difficult, when our culture makes it harder and harder to speak out and to follow Jesus, when we experience trials of any sort. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting. A friend of mine were talking about this last week, and he says, I think the devil's doing all these things. And I said, well, you look in the scriptures, I think that God can be bringing something about the hardships in our country to wake his people up from our complacency because we been complacent much too long. Mark Deaver once wrote this. If you can complain about the trials that you have experienced for following Christ, I wonder who it is you thought you were following. After all, what was Christ's life like? How can we complain when lesser things happen to us? Suffering and persecution was the way of Christ. 
Now, I start this way because Obadiah, in my opinion, others can disagree with that, and you'd be wrong, but whatever. <laughs> I, I think Obadiah was written after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., uh, when people are being hauled off to Babylon. It's written against a people called the Edomites, and I think it mu makes much more sense after the fall of Jerusalem because some people, like me, believe that uh, Obadiah was one of the people being hauled off into captivity and slavery. And he looks up and he sees the Edomites, who are actually relatives of the Israelite people, sitting high in their stronghold, looking down on Israel, doing nothing to help. And he's like, I'm going to prophesy. Spirit of God comes on and he prophesies against them and he prophesies that God's going to bring his people back. The Edomites actually went out of their way to capture fleeing Israelites when Babylon came in and they gave them over to the Babylonians. And it could be that Obadiah was one of the ones who maybe got away and was captured by the Edomites and handed over. But there's a lot to this in, in how he speaks. And so again, he will speak about the destruction of Edom and the divine restoration of God's people. And so where we're going to go today is what we talked about last week, uh, this whole idea of pride. Today could almost be Zephaniah part two, even though it's Obadiah, because last week we talked about the day of the Lord, humility, God's covenant, and our complacency. And Obadiah will speak a lot about pride and complacency, and that's where we're going to sit today. I'm not going to give you four points. We're just going to run at this thing called pride. A few years ago, uh, on Mother's Day, a much younger Saban brought gave a message to all of you guys about the things that God hates. It was very shocking. Haven't done one like that since. But as I was writing this message, it made me think about that. Are there things that God hates? Is, does God actually have an enemy in the world? And sometimes people talk like this. Like if you went and you asked one kind of Muslim, they would say, yes, God has enemies. It's the infidels, the people who don't follow Allah. It's like Americans and Israelis. If you ask a Hindu nationalist, they would say, yes, God has enemies. It's Muslims and Christians. You ask a lot of Christians and they would say, yeah, God has enemies. It's people who aren't Americans and don't live our Western way of life or anyone who lives in a horrible country. You go back to the 1950s, they would say, yes, God's enemies were the godless communists. But if you are someone who reads the Bible and you recognize the character of God, that question should sound just a little bit strange or absurd. Does God have enemies? Because we have enemies. I talk about this at Element a lot. We have enemies of Satan's sin and death. God comes and conquers those enemies for us in Christ, in what is known as the gospel. He rescues and saves us. But does God have enemies? Again, we have enemies, and they could be different things. Maybe someone's attacking your family. That's an enemy. It could be COVID. It could be hardships and trials and all those things. Uh, political scientist Samuel Huntington died 10 years ago. He has a very pessimistic view of humanity. This is what he says. It is human to hate like it is human to have enemies. Society seems to bear that out at times. But what about God hating? Bernard Lewis reflects on how the Iranian government uses the term enemies of God. And he says the phrase seems very strange to the modern, biblical, modern outsider, whether religious or secular. The idea that God has enemies and needs human help in order to identify and dispose of them is a little difficult to assimilate. Does God have enemies? Does God hate? And I'm not talking about political groups or religious groups that use that language as a way of intimidating or hurting people. The question is, does the God who actually exists, the God who made the universe, the God that is intimately involved in our lives, the, the God that comes in the person of Christ to rescue and save us, does he have an enemy? Does he hate? And if he does, we should know what that is. And I think into that, many of the minor prophets, including Obadiah, speak 
to that. They speak directly into this. Now, when I hear the word Obadiah, I, my mind goes, Obadiah, Obadah, life goes on. Yeah, 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 life goes on. That's, that's what I think about when I hear it. But Obadiah is really unique because he helps us to look at and relate to that question of what God's hates or what God's enemy is. Most of the other prophets, uh, these minor prophets, will speak to Israelis, to the people in Israel, these believers. And so sometimes it's easy to relate that to us as Christians. But Obadiah is speaking the majority part of his vision about these people called the Edomites and what God is going to do. The Edomites are people who left Israel's God a long, long time ago. And they got a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of mysticism, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, all mixed together. And this is what we believe because it works for us. Who does that sound like? Yes, it sounds like America today, exactly where we are. And so he speaks to these people who are a lot like us. And he will speak about what God's enemy is or what God hates. And that comes down to what I said just a moment ago, what we talked about last week, what we're going to go at this week, and that's pride. God's enemy is pride. God hates pride. Why? Because it destroys God's people. It is the root of sin. Open your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Uh, if you have a Bible, if you have an Element Bible, that is page 501. It's very hard to find, short little book. If you have the app, you're going to be right there, so you're going to be okay. So as I said, I think Obadiah is most likely written sometime after the fall of Jerusalem uh, when the Babylonians come in about 587 B.C. And as I said, during that flight, the conquering army comes in. Israel's next-door neighbors, the Edomites, did nothing to help them. Now, if you go back to the you know, patriarchal set of who Israel is, you have Abraham, God makes a promise to. Abraham has a kid named Isaac. Isaac has two kids, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob gets this blessing from God that Christ is going to come through your lineage. Uh, he has the, changes his name to Israel. He has the 12 kids, 12 tribes of Israel, kind of goes on that way. But in Genesis 36, it gives you the lineage of Esau. And Esau becomes a very powerful people known as the Edomites. And at this time, the Edomites live in a naturally impregnable fortress up on top of a hill. And so in that position, they felt very secure in who they were. Uh, he had narrow winding passages to get there. When Judah falls and is taken off into captivity, it greatly enriches Edom. They all of a sudden get those trade routes going back and forth. They become much more comfortable and much more wealthy. Things became really good because of the hardship that happened to other people. And because things were good, Edom felt self-sufficient and strong. And so this is what God says through Obadiah to Edom. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cleft of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me to the ground? Now, I think in America, and this is as since we're Americans, I'm going to kind of talk to us a little bit in this. I think that that's where American Christianity sat for a very, very long time. Uh, even though we weren't really engaging culture, we really felt like culture was on our side. There was a lot of morality to our culture. And so we didn't come in and engage, I think, like God was telling us to. We kind of sat back and just kind of went along with everything because it was easy. And I think now things are changing a bit. And it's like, oh, my goodness, what's happening in culture? What are we doing? I think God is saying you need to re-engage again. You've been sitting in your high lofty place thinking everything is great and going your way and you're very comfortable. You need to step back into the culture around you and speak of the good news of who Christ is. Who will bring me to the ground? Well, you know who's going to bring Edom to the ground? It's not the devil. It's God. It's God. And that's what God does to his people. Verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And that is how pride works 
We get so secure in who we think that we are in something rather than God himself. And then what we do is we keep feeding that thing. Whatever we think makes us comfortable and secure, we feed that thing over and over again. And when it fails us, we won't believe it's this thing that failed us. And then we just keep giving more of our time and energy to it, thinking if we build it back up enough, we'll just get more of that. Think about the political stance that a lot of Christians have taken in the last few years. Not that we shouldn't be involved in politics or anything like that, but a lot of Christians felt like, you know, politics is the way you change the world. Politics isn't how we change the world. Jesus is what changes the world. Speaking the gospel is what changes the world. That's what we have to come back to. Not that you can't be involved in politics or have an opinion, but we must place the gospel as central in all that we do. This is what God, I think, is calling us back to today. I mean, we think that in our lives that pride isn't really that bad, you know, because you don't go to jail for pride, right? Pride is bad, but it's not that bad. It kind of sits somewhere between not knowing how to use the roundabout and listening to country music. Bad, but not that bad. You know, it's right in there. But God says, it's the enemy of my people. It's the enemy of me. And if you don't know this, pride will then tend to lead us to comparisons. And comparisons are very detrimental in how we relate the gospel to the world. Uh, spiritual, spiritual comparisons are terrible. I'll do this on a, on a light note. Um, I have a friend named Jared who years ago used to coach t-ball. And if you don't know this, no one on a t-ball team is Derek Jeter. N nobody. Most people playing t-ball are more like your drunk uncle, can't find which hole his legs are supposed to go in in the pants and they're falling over all the time they don't know where to go that that's t-ball kids but parents will say oh it's about the game it's not about the score you know it's not about how good our kids are they should just have fun but you know what they all keep score every single one of them they may not say it out loud you know but they do and if their kid is actually able to hit the ball off the tee and they kind of run around those bases because no one in t-ball can stop a ball either and they get and they score the parents are like that is my kid that's amazing but if their kid's out in the field and they get beamed in the face with the ball because they're picking their nose or picking flowers or not paying attention to anything at all parents are like oh i hope my kid's okay but they also want to hide a little bit like oh, i hope not realize that, that that's my kid even t-ball is a powerful illustration of how quickly we start to compare in categories of who's good who's not, who's winners, who's losers, all of that. And you expand that from t-ball and then go to spiritual comparisons. Edom sits on their high hill. They think that they are fine because they aren't being overrun by these horrible Babylonians. Uh, unlike those messed up Israelites, what must they have done to have this happen to them? And we tend to get this way with other people around us. Certain things happen in people's lives and we automatically have some sort of judgment about why this thing must have happened to them. Maybe somebody snaps at you for some reason like, oh, what's wrong with them? You don't know what's going on in their heart and life. You don't know the background of where they are, but we tend to have these comparisons where we sit back in our pride and wonder what's wrong with them because I'm okay. We think I may have failed, but at least I didn't fail like so-and-so. Uh, our church may be struggling, but at least we're not struggling like so-and-so. All the while we fail to understand how dangerous pride can be. Oh, look at those messed up Israelites. At least we aren't like them. A few years ago, we did this series at Element called uh, Pharisee University. We based it uh, partly out of a book by Larry Osborne called Accidental Pharisees. And he says this, the Pharisee char characteristic of pride is usually found among people who think they love God the most. That is so true. 
it's usually found among those who think they love God the most. Now, in America, the church for a very long time seemed to only love other Christians. And there were a lot of people in the world who felt like they would never be welcomed into a church. Maybe they had a failed marriage. Maybe they were addicted to drugs. Maybe something is going on in their life. I will never be accepted in a church. And I think that's changing today. I think there's a lot of people who come in and they feel very welcomed in a church. But there is something else that's starting to replace that in churches today. And that is the idea that if you're not sold out to Jesus the exact same way I'm sold out to Jesus, well, then there's something wrong with you. You're not good enough. If your spiritual walk hasn't taken you to learn, I don't know, all the books of the Bible in the last five years, well, there's something wrong with you. We look down on other people and say, well, if you're not where I am, there is something wrong with you. And we have less grace for people who maybe take longer to get to a place or maybe who struggle through a lot of things. We feel like they are less than us. And so our pride has made me move from not inviting these people to not feeling like other people then can actually take their time to grow as God works in their life. We've exchanged one form of pride for another. And this becomes the problem that Obadiah points out in Edom, which is again the problem with us. We think we can see everything clearly. We think we understand how everybody responds and why they respond the way that they do, but we are typically blinded by our very own pride and self-centeredness. The Edomites, from their vantage, can sit up on the mountain. They can see all the valley around them. They can see people coming towards them, so they feel very safe and secure. But the people they couldn't see is themselves. That's who they couldn't see. They looked at everybody else around them. Their pride deluded them. Again, verse four, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, then there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. God says, I'm not impressed by the political position you hold. I'm not impressed by your naturally strategic defenses. I'm not impressed by how much money you make or the house that you have. God says, I'm the one who built the mountain. I'm the one that gave you the ability to have that house, to have those things. And God says, I can tear those things down because I am the one who is in control and I want to have my people be a people who are sold out to me. Not their stuff, not their pride, but to God himself. That's what God wants from us as a people. No earthly power or material advantage can withstand the course of justice when God determines to bring it about. And the nature of pride is that it always deceives us. In the same way we get impressed by our own position and what we've done, we become easily deluded. A a good historical example of this, in in World War II, France built this fortification called the Maginot Line. Did I put any pictures of this in there? No? Okay, I have some pictures. I'll I'll put them in next service. Sorry, guys. Online. Watch next service. You'll see it. Anyway, uh, but anyway, from 1929 to 1938, France builds this thing called the Maginot Line. They spend a fortune doing these defensive uh, fortifications between their border with Germany. And so they had heavy guns, thick concrete, air-conditioned living areas, areas for recreation. They had trains that would actually take them out of there if they got attacked. It made them feel safe from German aggression. So World War II hits and the French starts just like the Edomites. They feel very secure behind their Maginot line. They didn't think whatever Germany did was going to affect them because they were safe. But in the end, what the Germans did, they did invade. They just went around to Belgium and came in from the other side. It literally takes them 10 years to build this Maginot line and it takes the German just a few weeks to march around it and come in the other way. And that is what Obadiah is warring against. That happens to us in our pride. We fail to see the reality of our own limited vision. We make everything about ourselves and it's not meant to be about ourselves. The call to Edom was that they felt like they were sitting so secure in their pride, which then led them to a place of comparison and complacency and they ignored the plight of others who needed their help. So Obadiah verse 11 
God says this, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, that's Jerusalem, his child, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Like, oh, I didn't go in there and do that. You were like one of them. Verse 12, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over survivors in the day of distress. It is, are you looking at the people around you in ways that see them through my eyes? No, you're only looking at yourself. The Edomites should have known better. We should have know better in our lives, but too often we don't, don't realize it because we have focused too much of ourselves on ourselves. And this could be in large ways and small ways in the world around us, but we typically focus so much of our lives upon ourselves. Here, here's an example of what happens like this sometimes. Uh, we'll get an email to our general mailbox at Element, uh, or someone will fill out you know, one of these questionnaires that we have you guys fill out. And they'll talk about how they, they love it at Element. Oh, I'm a fan. You know, Element, we don't want to make fans of Element. We want people to be fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean you have to be a fan of Element to do that. But people will say, oh, yeah, we love Element. Then they give us a laundry list of these things that we need to change to make Element more embodying to people who are just like them. It's like, let's turn everybody into Edomites and instead of image bearers of God, Element should image me. They don't use those words. That's kind of what it means. Now, my first thought is always, you know how Element can be more inviting to people? You be more inviting. Thank you. One of you. You become more inviting. That's how it happens. Who's the last person you invited out to lunch after service? Or breakfast, if you come to the early service like this. Who, if you're in a GC, who, who's the last person you invited to a GC event? Not necessarily a notes night, but just something when you guys are hanging out or maybe to your home. <gasps> COVID, well, okay, well, whatever, something else. When's the last time you were in a church service and you saw someone you didn't recognize? You just said, hey, why don't you come sit next to me? Because you didn't recognize them. Who's the last person that hurt you that you sought out to try to then make things better? Obadiah, verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. As Americans in our culture, we think that sounds like karma. That's not karma. That's not. This is what pride does. This is where pride leads us, just like that. The, like the Edomites, our pride, again, has us evaluate ourselves by how we compare ourselves to other people around us. And whenever we do that, we always cheat a little bit. We inflate ourselves in our own mind. And I know this to be true because I know me. I've had conversations with you and I've seen you do it. I've seen television shows where, where people will go on and think they can sing and the judges are like, you sound horrible. And everybody watching is like, yeah, they sound horrible. But they're like, they can't hear. They I'm the greatest singer in the world. Why? Because their mom probably told them they were great and they're tone deaf but they think they're great. They think there's something wrong with the judges and not with their voice. I mean, we do this with kids all the time today. You can be whatever you want to be. You can be an Olympic high dive champion. Even if you're allergic to water, you're going to be fine. Like we do this to kids. Now, other people on the other side, they have these horrible self-esteem issues where they just think they're terrible and they're always putting themselves down. But really, it's the same thing. Here's an unpopular fact. Studies show that people who have self-esteem issues still have a very high view of themselves. In fact, studies have been done that show that 95% of people will rate themselves as above average in five areas, cognition, IQ, honesty, work ethic, and morality. And that goes against the law of averages. Look around this room, okay? Half of us are below the line. 
you're welcome. That's just how it works. That's just, that's just how it is. But our problem that these studies also show, it's not that, it's not that we, we don't see that or understand those studies. We simply don't believe it of ourselves. We think, oh, no, no, yeah, that's totally true. I get that, but it's everybody else. We don't think that we are ever below the line. We have a natural sin-based bent to look down on other people and think we are better than others. It is pride. It is self-deception. The Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. We have a tendency to compare with others and we look down on others because they are not where we think we are. But I got to tell you, maybe sometimes you're not where somebody else is. Maybe somebody, maybe, maybe you have a natural affinity when you, if you learn things from the Bible or natural affinity to prayer or hospitality, and maybe there's somebody else has a really hard time with hospitality, and maybe over the course of a year, they've gone to lunch with one person, but maybe in the course of their life, they've never done that at all. That's a huge step for that person. Maybe it's, it's learning things about the scripture and it takes you a really long time to, to get to places and other people just seem to grasp it. And it's like, and they're looking down on you like, oh, you don't know as much as I do. Well, maybe they're not where you are. Maybe your heart and passion is to really learn and it's hard for you. And yet you love God enough that you're spending the time to walk through these places. We are constantly judging one another and not seeing each other through the lens of Christ. And this is what God is saying to these people in Edom. You sit on your high place. You keep Keep looking down at other people. You must first see your life and everything around you through the lens of the gospel, through your own rescue and restoration. Only Jesus knows someone's heart. And Obadiah's book has the idea that Edomites didn't really care what was happening to the Israelites, why it was happening to the Israelites. We know why. It was judgment from God. God was disciplining his kids. But the Edomites just looked at them and said, oh, well, you're just terrible. And they just did all these things because they sat in their high place and looked down on others. And don't mistake me here. I am not saying we can't compare. How else do you know who to vote for or, or what to vote for, or how to make anything better? But when it comes to spiritual comparisons, it gets so sketchy with us. We have to understand that because we cannot read people's hearts. Again, we don't know if someone's come a long way or if they've barely grown. Think of the last person you had conflict with. If you're watching the live stream, it's probably the person sitting next to you. If you're here, it's probably the person you rode here with. It just happens. And then we get there and we think, what's wrong with those people? Why won't they see things the way that I see things? And we hold on to this grudge. And I know this because I do this with my wife. When we argue, I always think I'm right until she shows me that I'm actually wrong, and she's usually right. But I hold on to this point of view. The question for us, 2,500 years removed from Obadiah is, are we actually willing to trust God himself? Are we willing to trust him for our salvation and trust him that he holds us and other people in his hands and take a step back from where we've been judging others and actually speak into their lives the grace and the good news of the gospel? You know, we, can, we can sit there and say, hey, are you okay? Why are you responding the way you're responding? Maybe that kind of thing. But we must understand that at first for us, it all starts with the gospel. Dallas Willard wrote this, spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. If we call ourselves Christians, and again, I know not everyone watching or in the room maybe does, but if we do, we must remember that humility is a fruit of God's spirit in our lives and becomes part of his restorative work in us when we trust what Christ has done for us. If you are someone who fights against pride, you're like, I can't believe I did that again. I'm so prideful. Actually, take some comfort in that because that means God's spirit is actually working on you to help you to see it. If you never see pride in your life, if you never see complacency, well, that's probably a bigger issue. 
because God is constantly working on us in the places of our pride. We must listen to God's spirit. We must hear what he is saying to us. John Stott said this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. And if you maybe are offended that pride is your greatest enemy, consider what other things might offend you. Because I will tell you, when we get to a place where we trust Christ first in all things, we become a little more humble and we become far less offended by all these things around us. And that'd be good for society as a whole if we actually lived the gospel. But this is how the gospel changes us. We recognize again that it is Christ's work for us. When we see and know what we deserve because of our sins against him, and then what he has given us, that he has been so merciful to us in Christ himself, there is usually less cause to take offense, especially because God treats us far better than our sin has ever deserved. I think one of the dangers in our lives today that we constantly ask God to bless us is that God does bless us. God is good to us, but then we begin to trust in those blessings. And then we begin to sit in those high places of those blessings rather than the God who has blessed us. And I think it'd be good to understand what Obadiah was saying to Edom. Pride makes us callous. Pride makes us look down on others. Pride elevates ourselves in unhealthy ways and it will actually elevate us in our own minds above God himself thinking that we know how to live our lives better than how God calls us to live our lives. And the truth is, we don't need more self-focus. What we need is Jesus. We need to understand the gospel better, that we are a messed up people and God has come to save us in Christ. God has come to save us from our own self-centeredness. Until we understand that, we will always be hopelessly lost. And may God today expose our pride. May God begin to grow us out of it, preserve us from it, because it's his enemy, that means it is also ours as well. So we, as a people, ask God, show us our pride. Show us the places we've run from you. Show us the places that of our own high places where we look down on others. Well, I don't have any of those. Oh, okay, that's a high place to start from right there. We, we, we talk about these things. We talk about Jesus to Jesus about these things. We talk to the people around us about these things so we can have enough honesty in our lives to make us into a people who become humble. And like we talk about every week at Element, the place we come to most in humility is understanding what communion brings about. That's why I think Jesus says, you do this in remembrance of me. You do this in remembrance of who I am. Because when we come to communion, it reminds us of what Christ did to rescue and save us, to bring us back to himself, to bring us to be a people who trust him and not ourselves. And this is why when you take communion, you, you break a cracker. The cracker is to remind us of Christ's body that was broken for us. You drink the grape juice, and it's a reminder of his blood that was shed for us because we could not save ourselves. And so he is the one who rescues and saves us. No matter how great we think we are, we will never be saved by what we ourselves do. We will never make ourselves right before God. Our pride is always steering us away from who God is calling us to be. And this is why we come to the place of communion where we lay ourselves down in humility. And remember what the gospel is, that Christ died for us, that Christ rose from the dead to bring us back to himself. And yes, we run. And yes, we do a lot of dumb stuff in our lives, but God's grace is good and he is restorative and he brings us back to himself because he loves us. I'm gonna invite the band to come up. And as I do, I'm going to invite you to take communion if you'd like to. If you need prayer, uh, grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. She'll connect you with one of us. We'd, we'd love to be able to pray with you. Maybe you're in a place to say, I don't have any high places. I'm, I'm perfect. Uh, I don't know what's wrong with everybody else, but, but I'm great. Well, 
I would love to tell you how you're wrong. So come and talk to me. <laughs> Uh, if, if you're in a place today where, where you have this horrible self-esteem, where you're always looking down on yourself, I, I, we would love to be able to pray with you about that, to understand Christ's rescue of us. Because many times, self-esteem issues is because we focus so much on ourselves. We are so inwardly focused and we're not focused outward towards who he is. Now, yes, there are other things that kind of take place in there, but a lot of it is, again, getting our eyes off ourselves and onto Christ himself. And when we focus on ourselves, we're always going to be in a place where we feel less than because we are less than. But Christ restores us into his family and says, you are my children. I love you and I want to be with you forever. And so he brings us to himself because of the gospel, because of his love, because of his grace. And that is why we trust him. And so if you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you today. There's offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's a response to what he has done. It is always meant to be a response, as is all of our worship. When we understand what God did to rescue us from our pride, from our self-centeredness, to restore us to himself. Uh, I would also, again, recommend that you take maybe just those couple questions on the back of those sermon notes and just talk to some people about it this week, about your high places, you know, where you tend to be, where you look down on others. And uh, in the talking element this week, um, I have my friend Matt on it, and Matt kind of talks about one of his places, and Michael says, he goes, I know, yours is driving around about because you judge everybody else for it. And I'm all, yes, but I actually talked about this thing where... God has taken me on this journey in my life, I think, to understand the gospel better and what the gospel truly is and what the gospel isn't. And sometimes I have a tendency to judge other people who aren't where I am in their understanding of the gospel. How, how ironic is that, right? And so it's, it's this thing of being willing to look at our high places, look at, look at those things where God is leading us to be more grace-filled because he has offered us grace so that we would be those who understand his great love for us first, so we would in turn begin to live and be different. Let's be the people that God calls us to be. Not those who sit on our high mountaintop places, but those who actually engage the world and culture around us in ways that speak of the good news of God's rescue of everyone. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you, God, so often what pride does is it leads us to a place where we cease to trust you and begin to trust ourselves or something that we've given our lives to. And so today, as we kind of talk about this idea of pride and just hone deeper and deeper into that, that we would understand the places that we have run from you, the places that we have ceased to trust you. And in humility begin to understand your rescue of us and that we wouldn't then make that rescue of us become self-centered and saying, oh, it's all about me. It's that you take us and rescue us and then send us out into the world. You connect us into a body of people called the church, your family. That yes, you save us individually, but you don't leave us as individuals. You connect us into your community. And I ask that we would be those as we walk through your community and the lessons that we learn because of your grace, that we'd be willing to in turn offer others grace around us and speak about the places that we have grown, the places that we still fall, that in a community of Christ's followers, we don't need to hide. 
we can be completely honest about where we are, the struggles we have, and also the great grace that we have received so that we as an entire community of those who trust in the gospel, trust in your rescue of us, could step out into the world in ways that speaks of what true restoration means, that there is one God who loves us. There is one God that we surrender to because there is one God who surrendered himself to death on a cross to rescue and save us. Teach us in humility to trust you for our restoration and then teach us to trust you how to then live our lives in this world so we bring great glory to you as we live in the joy that you bring us. Amen. Now, we are going to come to communion. Like I said, we're going to do a couple songs. And as we do, take a few moments, just reflect on that. What is your high place? Where do you have a tendency to look down on other people because they're not where you are? And if you can identify something, take a little bit more time <laughs> and think about that. And, and once we come to that place, don't let that thing put you in a place where you just get really down on yourself about it. Because God knows our failures. God knows the places where we're always struggling. This is why Christ came and died for us. But resolve to see it and then lay it in his hands and then start walking in this world with him first in all that we do. Trust him for your life today. Then take communion and then worship with us as we surrender all to who he is.